You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the second Sunday of Christmas, January 5th, 2020. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment what it might have been like when these magi, or wise men, visited Jesus. They didn't know exactly where Jesus was. They were led by this star, And they went to Jerusalem because, obviously, that's where you would go if you were looking for the birth of a new king. If you were looking for a new king, you'd go to the capital city, and you'd go find the king's house, and the new person who's been born king of the Jews is going to be in the king's house because that's where the son of the king is going to be. And so that's just what the wise men do. They come to Jerusalem, and actually, we don't actually know how many of these wise men there were. When we have three wise men, as we do down here, it's really just a guess based on the fact that they brought three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But they might have all brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or they might, have, uh, they might have divided it up. There might have been 20 wise men. There might have been 30 wise men. There might have been just two. It just says there were wise men in the plural. So these wise men come, and they probably didn't come alone because they were carrying expensive gifts from a foreign country, they probably came with a whole entourage of people with them. And so they come into Jerusalem on these camels with their fancy clothes, and it would have made a big commotion. And in fact, it tells us in the scriptures that it did make a big commotion. It says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then it says, Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem. So this was a pretty well-known event at the time. 
everybody knew about these foreign people who had come into Jerusalem looking for this one who was born king of the Jews. Pretty big news in their day. But when they got to the king's house, when they visited with King Herod, they realized that the person that they were looking for was not there. Baby Jesus was somewhere else. They didn't even know what his name was yet. They just knew they were looking for this baby king of the Jews, and he wasn't there. And so that made Herod a little worried. That made all of Jerusalem a little bit troubled. And it made the wise men a little bit confused because they didn't know where to go. And so the, Herod had, had all of his, his own scribes and, and teachers of the law look in the Bible to figure out where this person was supposed to be from. And they ascertained that it was from Bethlehem that the Messiah would come. And so the, the wise men went off on the next leg of their journey to go find baby Jesus. Now, who are wise men? Who are magi? The word that's used for them in the Bible is magos. And it's used in a couple of other places, usually with the translation of magician. These were people who were probably advisors to the the king in their own country. They were practitioners of, of dark arts, sorcery, astrology, fortune telling, That's the kind of thing that they would do. And they were advisors to the king because they claimed to have secret knowledge of secret hidden things to be able to reveal to the king fortunes that might happen. If the king was going into battle, he would consult the magos to see whether or not the magos thought that the king would have success. They would create charms for the king and and do things like that to help the king succeed with special spiritual insight. Now, the thing you need to know about this is that these were practices that were absolutely forbidden in the Old Testament law. Absolutely forbidden. You were not allowed to do these things. And beyond that, in the New Testament, after Jesus had died and gone to heaven and rose again, all those things, in the New Testament, we see again that these sorts of things are are absolutely forbidden in the Christian life. Fortune-telling, horoscopes, astrology, all those things are not supposed to be part of the Christian life either. So it was forbidden in the Old Testament law. It's still forbidden in the New Testament law. And so we kind of scratch our heads as we look at these magos from a, a foreign, strange land coming to pay homage to Jesus, the baby king. What do we make of that? One commentator says this. He says, God's use of their astrological and cultural backgrounds to communicate with the Magi does not imply his endorsement of astrology, but it indicates his care in meeting individuals where they are. It indicates his care in meeting individuals where they are. And God still does that today. He doesn't expect people to be perfect when they come to him. In fact, he expects just the opposite. He expects them to be far off from him, doing all kinds of things that he wouldn't approve of, doing all kinds of things that are not approved of in his word. There are Muslims right now, today, in parts of the world where there is no way for missionaries to gain access to them. The governments around them have have such strict boundaries that there is no way that a Christian missionary could come in and make contact with Muslim believers in these places. And in the midst of these places, do you know what God is doing? He's appearing to them in dreams as Jesus, giving them the gospel in full form, and they wake up saying, I believe in Jesus. 
and then they start telling their friends about it, and the church is actually being implanted where, in places where missionaries have never set foot. It's remarkable, the stories that are happening, and this isn't just like one or two stories. This happens over and over and over again, and so when missionaries finally do gain access to some of these places, they go in, and they sometimes find a fully-fledged church already formed. Just amazing. Now, does, does God condone Muslim belief and practice? Absolutely not. But he's appearing to these Muslims in dreams because he wants them to come to know him. He wants these people who are far off from him to come to know him personally. We can't expect people to behave like Christians before they've accepted Jesus as Lord of their lives. We can't expect them to obey everything that's in God's word. We can't expect them to be on their best behavior and to do all the things that we would expect Christians to do. And even us Christians, we don't do all those things perfectly, do we? Because we're all still sinners being saved by God. God is still making us holy day by day by his Holy Spirit. And so we can't expect people who have not submitted their lives to Jesus and their lives to God's word, we can't expect them to behave the way that we would expect Christians to behave. We need to find ways to go to them where they are. Just like Jesus spent lots of time visiting with tax collectors and sinners, people who were outcasts from his society. He wanted them to be brought near to God, and so he spent time with them in their context, not taking on their practices that he didn't condone, but spending time with them and being with them and giving them a chance to get to know him and to come into covenant relationship with him. One of the things I love about this story is the way that it baffles people who try to identify exactly what this star was. People have come up with all kinds of suspicions about this. Halley's Comet was somewhere within 10 years of of Jesus' birth. It comes around every so often, and so the cycle of that might have been somewhere near Jesus' birth. Some people think that there was a conjunction of a couple of planets in the sky which might have made them appear a little bit more bright That happened somewhere within five or six years of Jesus' birth. There are lots of other uh, suppositions and and guesses as to what these these signs might have been that that could explain what these wise men saw at the time of Jesus' birth. But none of them are great explanations. None of them line up exactly with the the correct dating that we're looking for. And so it it makes people just kind of scratch their heads and say, well, what was it? And for those who are skeptical and prone to disbelief, they will look at that and they say, well, clearly there was no sign in the heavens during that time. That proves the Bible isn't true. People like to do that, don't they? To try and prove the Bible isn't true. The Bible is true, by the way. Every word of it is true. It's, it's true and trustworthy. And so we have to come to this and say, well, how do we explain it then? What was it? This was not just some normal star, though, right? Think about this. This star came to rest over the place where the child was. So there was some difference between what they saw when they were in Jerusalem and what they saw in the leading to Bethlehem where the child was. Now, what you need to know about geography is that Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. Similarly, Orange Park is about five miles from us right here. So when, when you look in the sky tonight, I want you to look in Middleburg 
and then I want you to drive over to Orange Park and tell me what looks different about the stars in Orange Park than it does right here in Middleburg. I'll give you a hint. There's nothing different about the stars between here and Orange Park. It's the same. Maybe a little bit more light in Orange Park that might wash out the stars, but there's nothing different from a geographical perspective that would make the stars look different from such a small distance away. So how did this star come to have some kind of a difference and rest over the place where the child was? Makes you scratch your head a little bit. It also kind of makes you wonder how these wise men knew what this star meant in the first place, doesn't it? I mean, it was a, it was a star in the sky. How would they know that this star had something to do with the birth of a new king of the Jews? To answer that question, we can go back into the Old Testament. And the wise men may have come from Arabia or possibly Babylonia. Babylonia was the area where the Jews had been in exile in the Old Testament. They had disobeyed God, they had turned away from God, and God exiled them to Babylonia. They were captured and taken away to a foreign land. In the Psalms, it talks about how uh, they were asked to sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land. And they could not because they were just weeping over the devastation of their people. So, this means the people in Babylonia, in Babylon, knew a little bit something about what the Jews believed, maybe about their, their scriptures. And so in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, there's a prophet named Balaam. Now, Balaam was not a great guy. He was like a, a prophet for hire. And there was a king who wanted to do battle with the Israelites. And so the king hired Balaam to curse the Israelites so that he could defeat the Israelites in battle. And so Balaam uh, goes along with it. He goes with the king. He stands over this area looking down on the, the people of Israel. And he tries to curse them, but he's unable to because he can only say the things that come from the Lord. This is the same story, by the way, that has a talking donkey. It's a lot of fun if you want to go back and read it. Uh, it would make a great movie someday. So go back and read it somewhere around chapter 24 in Numbers. But he speaks three times, and in his third oracle, he says, he says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Does that make sense to you? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. But when we look back on it, this is the kind of thing that we might think actually points the way to this star that pointed out the birth of Jesus. Prophecy is like that sometimes. When it's spoken, it doesn't always fully make sense. But then when you see the circumstances that happen later on and look back on it, you say, ah, that's exactly what he was talking about. And maybe these wise men, these magos, had a distant memory from hundreds of years before when their people had come in contact with the people of Israel. Maybe they had a distant memory of these Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish people. And maybe they were looking all that time for this sign of this star that would come to mean something special. It's amazing. So going back to what was this star, I like to think that this star, star was something special, something that no one has ever seen before or since, that it specifically was created by God to celebrate the birth of his son. 
Kind of like when you go into your neighborhood and someone has a new baby and they stick a, a sign in their yard that says, it's a boy or it's a girl. I think this is God celebrating the birth of his new baby boy. Saying how excited he is to the world. He wanted a sign that everyone could see that his baby boy had just been born in Bethlehem. A special sign for a special birth. Now, one of the amazing things that this story celebrates is the fact that Jesus' birth was announced to both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles. If you've been a part of our study that Ken Pawsley has been leading on the book of Acts, you know that this division between Jews and Gentiles was a very real thing. Jews did not like Gentiles. Jews did not want anything to do with Gentiles. Gentiles were outcasts as far as they were concerned. And basically, in the Jewish worldview, there were Jews, and then there was everybody else. That's what the Gentiles were. The Jews was everybody, or the Gentiles were all the people that were not Jews. And so, all the people that were not Jews, and even according to the law, the Jews were not supposed to associate with them. There were lots of laws about not eating with them, and not doing this or that with them, keeping them at a distance. So, it's pretty remarkable to think that God announces the birth of Jesus, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. In last week's epistle lesson, we read from Galatians. And these are the words that we read last week. It says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. To be a part of the people of God, the covenant people of God, in the Old Testament, you had to be Jewish. You had to be of the right lineage. There were some people who were not Jewish who came to be a part of the covenant in a certain way as proselytes, but they weren't full members of the covenant, not in the same way that someone who was born fully Jewish was a part of the covenant. Now, I want to ask you, in your own heritage, how many of you have Jewish descent? You know, maybe even an eighth. One of you? Two of you? Okay, everybody else, raise your hand. There was no way you could be a part of the covenant. Absolutely no way. You are all out, except because of this. Because in Christ, God was reconciling these different people and making them one, bringing them together to be one in Christ Jesus. That's a remarkable thing, and it's good news for all of you who raised your hand for the second question, because there's no way you could have been a part of that covenant previously. But now in Jesus, God has reconciled the whole world to himself. For all who put their faith in Jesus, the whole world can be reconciled. We can all be considered children of Abraham, not by blood, but by the promise. By the promise that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice that all the people to whom the birth of Jesus was announced were outcasts. The first people who heard about it were the shepherds in the fields who heard about it from angels. The other people that hear about it are these wise men who were looking for a star that the Jewish people had completely forgotten about, right? And so God draws these two groups of people to Jesus to see this Jesus who was born, 
king of the Jews. But you know who was remarkably, conspicuously absent from this birth announcement? King Herod. You would expect that King Herod would know something about this. You'd expect maybe that the temple authorities would know something about this. And yet they had no clue. It troubled them greatly to hear about this birth that they had no idea about. They had to go searching through the pages of the Bible, looking for some verse that would tell them where this king of the Jews might be, if this sign actually was true. Last Saturday, we celebrated the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which is when we remember all of the children uh, who were killed by Herod. It's the second part of the story that we read this morning. Because when the wise men don't go home or by the way of Herod. They go home by another way. They realize, because this angel told them so, that Herod was up to no good and that he couldn't be trusted. And so when the wise men don't come back to Herod, when they don't tell him where this baby was, he launches a campaign against all children in that area, and he kills all of them under the age of two. A massive, massive slaughter. What a terrible thing. Why would he do that? Because he was a tyrant. And tyrants are insecure. They're always worried that someone is going to usurp their authority. Is going to take away something that belongs to them. Something that they maybe don't even have rights to in the first place. And a tyrant does terrible things, like slaughter children. And that's just what Herod did. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns against sharing the good news with people who don't have ears to hear it. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And that's exactly what Herod would have done if this news had been announced to him directly. He would have trampled it underfoot and turned to attack it. Herod was not the kind of person to entrust with the good news of the gospel. Herod was a tyrant and he would go after the Christ child. Compare that, though, with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was not the king. He did not have any kind of political authority, but he did have quite a bit of spiritual authority because people were going out to him in droves to be baptized by him in the wilderness, repenting of their sins to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And so John is out there in the wilderness baptizing people, And he baptizes Jesus. We're going to celebrate that next week, so I'm not going to go into great detail about that right now. But he recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus apparently starts a ministry of baptism as well. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, it says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's, John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He's talking about Jesus here. So all the people that were being baptized by John, they've all turned and they're all going to Jesus now. So people aren't going to John in the same way that they used to. Now they're all going to Jesus. And John answers this way. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy 
This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. See how remarkably different that is from Herod? John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus has a greater spiritual authority and he rejoices that people are going to Jesus instead of him. Herod recognizes only a threat and he seeks to squash that threat by any means necessary to preserve what belongs to him. We must come to Jesus as he came to us in humility and we must follow John's example. He must increase and we must decrease. So how do these magi, these magos, how do they respond to the news announced by the sign in the heavens? They saddle up their camels, they gather their gifts, and they depart on a long journey to a faraway country. They have no hesitation. They know that that's the thing to do. And so they take action immediately, and they go. And they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh with them. These were all very costly items. These are not your average baby shower gifts. They were not bringing extra swaddling clothes so that Mary had an extra change for when Jesus soiled his swaddling clothes. And they, you know, they were not bringing another crib to replace the, the dirty manger that he was placed in when he was born. No such thing. They were bringing gifts for a king. Costly things, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are the kind of gifts that you would give to newborn royalty. The giving of these gifts fit for a king may be a reminder in the Old Testament of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, the son of David. And she brought with her gold and spices from Sheba, which is somewhere around the area of Ethiopia. She also was a Gentile coming to visit this Hebrew king, this Jewish king and bringing these costly gifts to acknowledge the glory of his kingdom. She had heard about his wisdom, and she wanted to come and see it for herself, see the glory of his kingdom and all of these riches that he had, and he showed her everything. Similarly, when Jesus is born, another son of David, these wise men come because they want to see the glory of this new king. They know that he is something special, and they want to see it and behold it for themselves, and they come bearing these costly gifts. Perhaps this was a state visit with official representatives of one nation coming to offer official gifts and acknowledge the birth of this new king. And yet the Greek word that's used here, which is translated as worship, is only used in the New Testament towards a divine object, only used in talking about worshiping God. And so when the Magi fall down and worship him, as it says in verse 211 of Matthew, they are worshiping Jesus not just as a king that they're paying homage to, but as divine. They're worshiping Jesus, the baby, as God. The incarnation of Jesus is a gift for all who choose to receive it. Rich or poor, black or white, Asian or Latino, male or female, it's for everybody, as it says in Galatians. And our response to this gift is to acknowledge him to pay homage to him, but most of all, to fall down and worship him. And so I'll close with these words from a wonderful Christmas hymn, In the Bleak Midwinter. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. 
If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. I give him my heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the birth of your son, Jesus. And we delight in the fact that you have called even Gentiles to yourself, giving us the ability to become sons of Abraham and members of your covenant people. We thank you for the riches that Jesus offers us through his incarnation, through his death and resurrection and ascension. And so we come before him as those wise men did, and we bow before him, and we pay homage to him, and we worship him. Jesus, we desire for you to be Lord of our lives. Help us to decrease so that you might increase in us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.